Do I wish I was a journalist going right down the middle? No, I'd be ashamed of myself. I could not be silent when somebody is destroying the Constitution and destroying politics as I cherish and worshipped it for this self-promotion. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Ken Rudin, a journalist who hosts the Political Junkie podcast. He is an expert in politics, elections, and campaign history, and a noted collector of political buttons. Ken was formerly National Public Radio's political editor, where his segment was heard on Talk of the Nation. He was also managing editor of The Hotline for a while, a daily political newsletter, and in the 80s was deputy political director at ABC News. Ken spent most of his career as a traditional nonpartisan reporter, but has found himself having to change that orientation in the Trump era. We had an enjoyable conversation about Ken's career, his creation of his current weekly podcast, and how he views the big changes in politics over his time as a reporter and analyst. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Ken Rudin. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Ken, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Ken Rudin. I'm the host of the Political Junkie podcast, uh, the official term Ken Rudin's Political Junkie podcast. I was a, a researcher, then deputy political director at ABC News uh, in New York and then Washington from 1983 to 1991. In 1991, I became the first political editor at NPR my career at NPR lasted until cutbacks in 2013, which is when I started this podcast, which basically was a continuation of the political junkie segment I had running on Talk of the Nation on NPR for six, seven years with no Conan. Where did you come by this intense interest in politics? Was your family political? No, not at all. Uh, matter of fact, I, just recently, I, I had to remind my mother, who's 91, that Nixon resigned. Um, no, my parents were not political at all. I, when I was 15 years old, I started collecting campaign buttons. And I remember at the end of the 1966 campaign, I had a shoebox filled with buttons, and I just couldn't believe it. And now I have upwards of 75,000 <laughs> different, I need help, uh, buttons uh, that I've been collecting ever since. I specialize in governor, senator, and congress from all states, but I also have presidentials from 1896 to 2024. I have Vietnam, civil rights, left wing, right wing, baseball. I read everything, but I specialize in politics. Anyway, so, well, here's the story, though. So one day I was walking out of my apartment in Fort Lee, New Jersey, 
and Charlie Osgood from CBS is waiting for a taxi. This is 1982. And I said, Charlie, I always wanted to be in journalism, political journalism with the networks. Charlie Osgood got me an interview with CBS News. And then that didn't work out. But I got an interview with ABC News. And then my political journalist career took off from then. Had you studied political science or such? What, what was your college? I did. I, I mean, I went to many colleges. I finished at Pace University in New York with a political science degree. But but I wish I had taken journalism, which they didn't have. I wish I'd taken more journalism type uh, courses, which I never did, because that's what I really like. I don't need to talk about the history of politics, the history of political science. I like the, 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 the combination of media and uh, politics. That's what I really, really enjoy. Fascinated by it. Did you ever run into a guy named Jimmy Warlick with Political Americana who sold political memorabilia down in Union Station in D.C. and elsewhere? I've been to that shop. As a matter of fact, at one point, uh, John Schmitz, the ultra-right-wing congressman who ran against Nixon in 1972, Schmitz was working in that store as well. I've been to that store, but, but basically what I would do is when I was a political editor at NPR, I would send my reporters out and say, don't come back. I don't care what kind of reporting you've done, but don't come back without buttons. And that was my deal I had with them. Well, I, I know how a collection can take over. It's scary. And, oh, yeah. 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 I, I've decided once that I would have a collection that nobody else would have. So I had a couple bags of potato chips on my desk and now I collect potato chip bags and I have them from all over the world. And you're, you're mocking me, aren't you? I am not. I wanted to have a weirder collection than than the next person. So people bring me p- potato chip bags, small ones from all over now. But I only have like a shoebox or two full, you know, like uh, several hundred. So <laughs> speechless. So basically, when you get a new addition to your collection, you must be going like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. I mean, I have like, you know, Muhammad Ali sour cream and onion, which you know, you uh, can't find that everywhere. Oh, but the, 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 the original one was Cassius Clay sour cream and onion. You don't have that one. That's the tough one to get. I do have some political buttons going back, like I think from my dad, a Franklin Roosevelt button. And uh, I certainly have a bunch of Gary Hart stuff because I grew up in Colorado when and he was my senator. But And who Gary Hart defeat in 1974? Who did he? Dominic? Peter Dominic. Correct. You win. You win potato chips. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely paid attention to politics since I went as a seven-year-old to vote for McGovern in my Boulder, Colorado district vote, in quotes, with my parents. And my precinct went four to one for McGovern over Nixon that year. And the nation did not follow. Yeah, I was going to say, as Boulder goes, so goes, uh, I don't know what. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're that kind of person. What, what did you learn at ABC News about journalism and politics? Well, that's a good question. I probably learned much more at NPR because NPR, I was in, responsible for political coverage. And that is when I edit pieces, I was, and I'll tell you, I, I, there's a reason I'm using the word was, but I was very fascinated and determined to make sure that political bias, political opinions were, were taken out of political coverage. I mean, I don't like questions that say, don't you think, I didn't like leading questions. I didn't like leaning left or right in coverage at all. I wanted to make sure that it was just the facts, ma'am, kind of reporting. Uh, So that was really what I learned more at NPR. That seems a little quaint now. 
Well, it does, and it's regrettable. But I think, but I, but I think nothing is more regrettable than the state of our politics. And the state of our politics in 2022 resembles nothing like it was when I started in '83. I, I, I concur. There's something that is sort of inconceivable to people who've watched politics for as long as you and I have. That, that's going on. I've used that word inconceivable more often than I would ever expect. It's just stunning the, the, the kind of words we're hearing from some politicians and certainly politicians who should know better. I, I remember I interviewed a spokesman for Hillary in 2017, early in 2017, and he used the word calamity to describe that election. And I thought that that was pretty apt. Yes, but you know something, in retrospect, or even at the time, I understood the appeal of, of, of uh, Donald Trump. It's just the anger that was out there that nothing is working, that jobs are being shipped overseas, that prices are rising, that Hillary was more of the same of Obama, which is good if you like Obama. But the point is, it just seemed like Trump was offering something different. People who never uh, um, voted before, cared about politics before, uh, and decided that things weren't working. Little did I know that what Trump would unleash, and it's not that Trump is responsible for it, but he helped unleash, I think, and this is something that's difficult for me to say because I've spent my whole life looking at D's and R's the same way, but Trump has unleashed a, an anger, more than an anger, a hatred, an ignorance for facts, an ignorance for comedy that that I think that we're not, we're, I don't see how we're going to ever be able to turn back from, and that frightens me. There's that, which is a whole nightmare unto itself. And then there's the move to not abide by a national election that continues, that is just egregious beyond all belief. And not only that, it's not going away when you see that Donald Trump told Mehmet Oz, declare victory now because everything else is fake. They're trying to steal it from you. The, these these mail votes are, are unconscionable and illegal. Declare victory now. That's what scares me the most. The fact that there are so many Republicans running for secretary of state around the country who are committed election deniers who said, look, the way to count it is our side counts the votes. That is that is absolutely abhorrent to everything I've ever believed in and learned and and that's what makes it difficult to say, well, Democrats, on the other hand, Republicans, it's not that way. It's democracy versus non-democracy. That's how I see it. T tell me about this transition that you made that seems really important from trying to be a journalist in an even-handed fashion to thinking about that imbalance between the parties that you clearly have come to. Is there a moment? Is that a gradual change? What happened? Well, I always do describe the famous escalator ride down at Trump Towers in 2015 when uh, Donald and Melania were coming down and then that led to a ban on Muslims in this country. I mean, as recently as 2014, I really didn't Root. I mean, I never rooted for Canada. I never rooted for Democrats or Republicans. There are a lot of Democrats I abhorred, and there are a lot of Republicans I liked, and it didn't matter to me. It really didn't. But when I see just, you know, Republicans who basically, it's a combination of the escalator ride in 2015 and the aftermath of 2020. The fact that so many Republicans would latch on to a, a, a lie 
And maybe they fear that, maybe rightfully so, they fear that they don't believe it, you know, they don't latch onto it at the fear of losing their primary. I mean, look at people like Jeff Flake and, and Bob Corker in Tennessee, people who just criticized Trump and found themselves without a party. I think one of my favorite politicians in the country is Liz Cheney in Wyoming because she has a temerity to say, you're cheating, you're lying, you support insurrection against the Constitution. This is unheard of. It's something that has infected my day-to-day view of everything. It's just a substantial change in how I feel about the country and how I feel about our politics. Oh, absolutely. Of course, I remember the, the uh, I'm ashamed to be an American marches in 66 and 67 during the Vietnam War. And I said, well, you're never ashamed to be an American. You may be not happy with presidential policy, but lately it's when you have half the government just flat out lying about things and they're talking about race and religion and common decency that I've never heard before. I mean, you know, demagogues would stand out in the old days. You would know who they were. But now the lists are filling up quickly of politicians who just have no, they just don't care about, again, about the truth, about the facts, about decency. And I don't know what the answer is. Do I say go out and vote Democratic? It's not that I like Democrats better than Republicans. I just despise Republicans who have no caring about... It's just appalling. And here we are, two, you know, two guys sitting in their mother's basement. And I'm kidding, of course. But we're just talking about... I'm in the garage. I'm in the office. <laughs> but my point, my point is, is that what is the... How do, how do, what changes? I don't know how it changes. And I, you know, I mean, look, we all remember after 2012 when Mitt Romney lost and Republicans came up with this autopsy about how the Republicans could ever win again. We're losing the demographic battle. You know, we've got to start being more inclusive about women, about gays, about uh, minority groups, blah, 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 because we'll never win again. Now it's just like you, you think there's more of us, meaning truth tellers, than them lying, but yet, do I think the Republicans are going to win the House in November? Absolutely. Do I think they're going to win the Senate? They have a great chance of winning the Senate. And then what happens? Trump refuses to concede. I mean, what happens if he never concedes? What if happens if he wins, runs and wins in 2024 and says, I'm never leaving? Or I, I make my son the next president without an election or with a fake election or Barron. Barron. Yeah. I'm worried about Barron. Forget about Donald Trump or Donald Jr. or Eric. It's Barron that I'm concerned about. <laughs> I'm really curious about your time at NPR. I have had the good fortune to play basketball with a bunch of NPR guys, including John Golnick, who introduced us. And I interviewed on the show early in 2017, Neil Conan, who I know you uh, worked closely with uh, a couple times, actually, he was on this podcast. Tell me about that, because that seems like a great place to cover politics from. I've been like a public radio listener since I was a little. Well, it's interesting. When I left ABC News, you know, they had cutbacks at ABC News in 1991. And uh, that next day, I got an offer to do a piece on air for CNN. And that was great, too. And I thought, TV is what I'm going to stay with. And then I got a call the next Monday from Koki Roberts, who, whom I adored and cherished, and said that NPR has never had a political editor. I'd love it for it to be you. And I said, I, I really thought to myself, well, what's NPR? 
I never listened. I never listened. I didn't know, you know, the, the Linda Wertheimer's, uh, Susan Stamberg's, uh, Koki Roberts. I didn't know. I mean, I knew who they were because I know who journalists are, but I didn't understand the NPR thing. And did I think it had a reputation of being well left of center? I mean, I did. And, and not that I was a right winger. I just thought that anything that sounded biased or ideological is not really something I wanted. But I learned that the people at NPR were so the, the smartest people I've ever met in my life. They knew their stuff. And what I loved about NPR is that an ABC, when sometimes you would get a minute 30 to describe what's happening in the world, NPR would give you five, six, seven and a half minutes with sound, with voices, with forget about just horse races. It's what people are thinking. It just changed my view of the world and of journalism, that it didn't have to be, you know, Smith is up and Jones is down. It's like, this is what people are caring about. This is what's concerning people. And it was fascinating to me. It was a, an opportunity that I actually thought would never end. But as all things, as, as my dear friend, late, the late uh, uh, Neil Conan learned, late things do end. They cut Talk of the Nation in 2013. Neil was devastated, but, but was a total pro about it. Do I listen to it like I used to? No. Do I listen to it? Do I roll my eyes at what I think is just um, sometimes inane, often, you know, simplistic coverage of politics, I do. But without public radio, I, I just know that, you know, you get in the car, people need to know. And I still work with member stations. I, I'm live on stations around the country. And I know this thirst for knowledge and information that doesn't seem to exist beyond public radio. What do you think constitutes a really good political interview? You need somebody who's listening to what the person is saying. I think you need to follow up. I remember Bob Edwards, who was the longtime host of uh, Morning Edition on NPR, and he would ask a long question, and the responder would give a long answer, and then Bob would say, and, or so, and I'm saying, no, no, you got it. we need more than that. Although Bob had a way of doing it like nobody else did it. But, I mean, you, you need to listen, and you need to ask, and they said earlier, never start a question with, don't you think that what I loved about it is that the questioner, the journalist at NPR really cared about what America was thinking? And if that was could be left wing, right wing, the people stuck in the middle. Don't go into an interview thinking you know everything. And that's one thing about politics. I thought I knew everything in the world before I joined ABC. And I said, wow, it's amazing how much I don't know and how much I learned from some great, great journalist. And then when I came to NPR, I said, my God, these people are brilliant. These people just know their stuff and know what's the importance of sound. That's what I really appreciated of NPR, the importance of sound that you didn't find in television at all. I, I listened to your episode, which was a tribute to Neil when he died. I think there's something, first of all, it's very touching and well done. But Thank you. Thank you. I've had four or five of the guests that I've had on my show die subsequent to the interview, one within a month who was less than 30 years old. And there's just something about having captured that moment in time with somebody who's no longer with us. That is, I mean, like in Neil's case, he left a long trail of his voice, 
But in other people's cases, sometimes it's been like one of very few interviews where I've spent an hour with them and gotten a biography. It feels, I don't know, it feels very meaningful to me. I'm glad you said that. I never thought of those words, but as you were saying what you just said, that's exactly how I feel. I have this thing about death <laughs> that I'm not in favor of. But 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 more importantly, these people are giants. These people, whether you like politicians or not, whether you like journalists or not, they care deeply, for the most part, about their craft, about about doing the right thing, as journalists and politicians alike. So you could be 30, you could be 90, and, and still be taken too soon. And so I think that in opportunities I've had, matter of fact, I, you know, when I like I'll interview so-and-so and then they'll die years later and I'll replay the interview. Like Bob Fuss of CBS News was a wonderful, delightful journalist who was on the radio a lot and, and he just had great stories. When I think of people like that, I think that they, they hold a deep part of my heart because they gave their own. If we didn't have their sound, if we didn't have the memory of their sound and their stories, they would be gone forever. And that's such a shame because there's such talent, such emotion, such devotion to their craft. Neil was a perfect case of that. And you know what I loved about City with Neil? We had this political junkie segment on Talk of the Nation every week for about seven years from 2006 to 2013. And a lot of times I would say, you know, like I would do silly sophomore jokes on the show. <laughs> and um, and Neil would, of course, have this exasperated face. And I would always let the audience know, you need to know the face that Neil has on right now. Because, you know, it's one thing to hear his voice, to hear the inflection. But I don't wish I were on TV, in TV for a second anymore. I love the radio. But I always wanted to know what Neil's face was like. And, and people really loved it. Everybody just welcomed him into their living room or their car or something. And people like that are gone. And you, like you, you talk about your friend, your, the person you interviewed, who was, you know, less than 30 years old. And God knows why somebody could be that young to, is taken. But he left his words and he left his stories with you. And that is beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. I, another person in that category was Anne-Marie Habershaw. The person you wouldn't know unless you were really an insider to Democratic campaign politics, but she was the chief financial officer for the Obama 2012 uh, re-election campaign. And she had played that kind of role at the DNC and the DCCC, and she had been in a consulting firm in internet and politics. And the people around her had so much respect for her as a coworker and a leader in those organizations. You know, I knew her from some work that we did together in the nonprofit space, but to have that record of interviewing her, which I don't think she made the press typically, I'm just very, very happy and proud of it. And there's a number of people like that, so. I think I was seeing, as you were talking about her, and I don't know who this woman was, but I think of people like Paul Tully, the longtime Democratic operator who died right before the 1992 election. And it's an election he cared so much about. Tim Russert, who I really think did hang up his political spikes um, when he became the host of Meet the Press, he died just months before the Obama election, which was so historic in nature, something that Tim Russert just loved, not because he loved Obama, but he loved the great story. That breaks my heart more than everything. There's somebody, you know, you see, it's almost Moses-esque when you see 
the top of the mountain and you're getting there and you just don't manage to get there and it leaves everybody else, you know, so saddened and but appreciative of the effort they made and you, you never forget them. Yeah, I don't know you, but one thing that I admire about you is the fact that you took what you were doing and what you loved and made it continue outside of the institution that you started with, right? The, the idea that you now have an independent show is kind of a triumph of entrepreneurship as I see it. It's not that easy. No, no. I, I like to tell people, and it's true, that I've never worked harder and never made less money in my life. And yet, do I love this show? I do. I love talking to Alan Simpson and, you know, the, I mean, well. Well, I, he's I, got a sense of humor, Mr. He, Simpson. He, he does. He does. He really, he really cares about that. And speaking of which, I never thought that Gary Hart had much of a sense of humor. But I also like talking to him. I mean, I had Trent Law talking on my show about the uh, the Strom Thurmond birthday salute. I mean, it was an ugly moment in the life, but if you listen to the interview, he really seems like he's reaching inside himself and said, well, you know, I screwed up on this one or something. And that's what I appreciate. Look, I don't, I'm not comparing my politics to Trent Lotz. I'm not comparing it to Gary Hart. I want them to open up and say things when they're unable to or refuse to do so. I don't, I'm not angry. I think it's a disappointment because I think they have an opportunity to say just great things about their craft their, and what they've experienced in their lives. A new experience I have, which I never would have thought I had, is I get, I have a little bit of envy for, for when I hear now someone got to interview Gary Hart or someone like that. I'm 760 some guests or very high percentage of whom I admire and, and chose for a reason. But there's something about like that opportunity to ask questions directly of somebody who is important for some reason in politics. That's really cool that you get that opportunity. You know, I remember one of my favorite interviews is with Ted Kennedy, Ted Kennedy and this had to be about, oh, maybe 1990 or so. And the interview is awful. He's robotic. He can't complete a sentence. He's, he's struggling to finish a sentence. And then I said to the cameraman, this is with ABC, I said, cut. I said, let's just start from the beginning and let's just start talking. And on his mantelpiece, he had pictures of his family. And God knows he had so many grandchildren and, and all those. And, and we would talk about that. I said, look at that, look at that, look at that. And he, he suddenly, his eyes lit up and he opened up. And then, boom, I started recording again. And it was fantastic. I remember once Tom Ridge came to NPR uh, when he was uh, the um, Homeland Security. Uh, thank or? you. Homeland Security. But as soon as he got there, he said, well, you know, something I uh, really uh, I'm going I have to go to the White House in 20 minutes. I really don't have time for this. So I remember some journalist, Pam Fessler, who's one of the journalists would ask questions. And she say, blah, blah, blah. You know, everything was rote. And then suddenly I said, uh, so he said, I got to go. I got to go. And I said, Mr. Secretary, before you leave, I want to show you something I brought in. And I brought in my collection of Tom Ridge campaign buttons. Which is maybe about two hundred. I mean, that's wow. all they have. And he and he said, "Whoa, whoa!" He put down his coat. He said, "Oh my goodness, look at this!" And then one button. He said, "I remember." He said, "Governor Ridge today, President Ridge tomorrow." He said, "Don't let anyone see this." And then his aides were saying, "We gotta go. We gotta go." He said, "No, no, no." He said, "You don't mind if I steal these, do you?" And I said, "Well, I'd have to have you arrested." And I said. I don't think I've ever said that to a cabinet official before, but he loved it so much. I remember, I mean, I remember those little moments where human 
touches come out of people when uh, Congressman Les Aspen was named House. This is before he was Defense Secretary under Clinton. He was named House Armed Services Committee Chairman. He, he was at a, a guest at a, the White House Correspondents' Dinner. He was a guest at our table. And he's going, oh, oh, oh I'm Les Aspen, the chairman, blah, blah, blah. And I, I'm pretending I don't know who he is. He said, yeah, I'm from the 1st District of Wisconsin, blah, blah, blah. And as he's talking, explaining who he is, I open up my tuxedo jacket. And inside the jacket, I have nine buttons of Henry Shatterberg, the guy he defeated when he came to Congress in 1970. Not Les Aspen buttons, but Henry Shatterberg, the guy he defeated. So as I'm pretending that I don't know who Les Aspen is, I open up my jacket, show his buttons, and he said, oh, my God, in that campaign, I only won by 42 votes in the primary. And they opened up, and I just love that so much. That's a good story. What was the founding story for your show in, in an independent space? How did you get it going? Well, I just didn't want to stop doing it. I was not a listener to podcasts. I didn't know from podcasts. And I just found a, a producer at, at NPR and a producer at WAMU, the general manager at AMU said, you could use our station, you could use our studios to continue what you're doing. A bunch of congressmen would come in and they, they, they just do their interviews uh, and it continued. And I have, I, I paid a, um, a producer to put it all together. I, produced, I hired an editor uh, to make sure the, the, the interview sounded right. And then when WAMU started saying, well, we can't give it to you free anymore, I decided to buy equipment for the button basement and have it all there. And somebody taught me how to do it. And I'm fascinated. I mean, I loved it. It's one thing to give it to somebody else to edit and give somebody to work on sound. I knew so little about the, the mechanisms of how to put together a show. I knew because basically as a political editor, I would do my politics and goodbye, I'm out of here. I knew nothing about the final product. But working on sound and working on inflection and, and trying to get best sound without being mean or gotcha or things like that, I adored that. It, it's exhausting and it's, it's sometimes aggravating and because sometimes it's hard to split a piece of sound without you know making it more difficult to hear. But oh my goodness, when it is a finished product, I feel so proud. These are interviews with people that I really am proud of. They told their story, and I think the way they would be proud of. So tell me about like how you put a show together from beginning to end. I've listened to enough of yours to know that like it starts out with pieces of famous speeches, and then you like my my show is basically one long interview. Yours is is much more produced with segments and and different pieces of sound put and together. Music, and music as well. In yes. it. So, yeah, I do, I do it all myself because I do. Do you do the editing now? I do everything myself. Yeah. yeah so yeah. tell me about that. Like, how do you decide what you're, it's about every two weeks, right? So how do you decide what are you going to cover? I mean, obviously it's topical stuff. It's stuff in the news. How do you decide? How do you get the interview? Well, a lot of people do, which is which I'm very grateful for. A lot of people remember me from NPR, even though it's it's uh, it's nine years since I've been uh, left, which is hard to imagine. But uh, I'll just call and say, look, this is a great gubernatorial election in, in in Georgia this week. I mean, you have Brian Kemp backed by Mike Pence uh, versus 
David Perdue, who is backed by Donald Trump. So it's not only here's who the campaigners are and what the campaign is about, but I'm always also fascinated about outside stories in there, like like Trump's influence. He endorsed J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance was in third place and he won it. He endorsed the uh, Mehmet Oz, who to me is has nothing to do with politics. Trump became the wizard for Oz, you know, so to speak. And so, so I knew exactly the stories I would like to do. I mean, when Supreme Court leaked that tape, the tape that that seemed to indicate that Roe would be overturned. I don't want to talk to a, 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 a pro-abortion rights activist, but I want to talk to people about how this will affect that key center race in your area. So that I know. So I'll set the interview up. I'll write the questions for the interview. The interviews often will will go 20 minutes to sometimes 45 minutes. I like to get it down to about 15, sometimes 20 minutes, because I don't think people will be interested in hearing it for that long, but maybe they do. If it's a great interview, like when John McCain died, I mean, I had Mike Murphy, who is one of his top aides, talking for a long time about it, because I think he was there, he was, you know, working for this complicated and and fascinating figure, and I thought it was a great story. So sometimes it depends on how good of a story it is to see how long it is. And then as I'm editing it, I'll edit it on Adobe. Uh, um, I love the fact that brain is, doesn't work when I'm on your show. Every time I've been on your show, my brain stopped working. Um, <laughs> Adobe Audition? That's exactly right. Thank you. Adobe Audition. <laughs> I am so happy that I'm coming up with these things. You know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Whenever, whenever my brain works well, uh, I, I celebrate it. Listen, um, I can't pay you, but could you be my reminder on my show every week? Anyway, Uh, yes. So we all and I would put that together, and then I'll just try to do a perfect song. I mean, I'm big into '60s, '70s, and '80s music. Uh, I have no idea what's on the music radio today, but I'll just pick songs that are are appropriate. Um, Of course, when Neil Kona passed, um, the 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 bird song, "So You Want to Be a Politician." I use that because that was that was Neil's farewell song, you know, every week on Talk of the Nation or on the Political Junkie segment. Matter of fact, it was Neil's idea to have these little segments before the show started, like Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Uh, then you hear Sarah Palin saying lipstick. And then you hear uh, Lloyd Benson saying, you know, Jack Kennedy. That, so what I do now is I do music about both for Nixon and Lodge and you have Frank Sinatra singing about JFK and, and you know, a song about Eisenhower and Nixon. I want this to feel like a political junkie avenue that people can go to and just talk about politics. I wish I had the ability to go live with it because I think there's just great conversations people would love to have about it. But I get great feedback and people are very generous with their contributions. And I'm very thankful for that. How does it work? kind of as a business, what are the different ways that the show pays for itself? You mentioned donations. Do you get paid when, when the NPR local stations put it on? Do you? No, no, no. no well, I, oh, well, there are two things. Originally for the first, oh, five years or so, I would have uh, both a podcast and a, 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 a political junkie segment on NPR stations around the country. And, and I would get paid for that. But when my producer, after five years or so, decided to move on, uh, now I only have the podcast. I never got a, an agent. I never got 
a business person to explain to me how to make money. And I'm not really much of a beggar. Right. The the segments on NPR where you ask for donations and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And no, that's not, that's not that's not me. But but in addition to the podcast, I used to have a uh, a political junkie scuttlebutton puzzle every week. And and what that means is I would take two or three buttons and put it in a vertical line. And the goal was to take one word from each button and make a saying out of it. So like, for example, um, I have a button of Bill Clements, the former governor of Texas, dressed as a chicken. Doesn't matter why, but he's dressed as a chicken. Uh, th- then I would have Ed Koch button from New York. I would have a button that just says A on it from the anarchist party. And then I have a button that's a picture of Margaret Thatcher. So when you have a button of the governor of Texas dressed as a chicken, you have Ed Koch, you have the letter A, and you have Margaret Thatcher, you have chicken cacciatore. <laughs> that does have an NPR-ish sense to it. <laughs> now, now, if I were with Neil Cohen, I would say, boy, uh, Nathaniel's uh, eyes were rolling on that one. <laughs> but anyway, so I had fun with that. And then I have, would have trivia questions, and on certain primary days, I would put a blog post down what's what's to be expected, what's, what to look for, things like that. You have merchandise too, right? I do. I have t-shirt, uh, t-shirts and socks and things like that. And people love swag, as do I. Do you put your initials in front of Political Junkie because somebody else has some rights to Political Junkie? Or is that just your sort of branding? No, I don't care about K. I would love it to be Political Junkie. I think when we were first looking, somebody else had a show called Political Junkie. But because I've been, um, you know, it, my show, my segment on NPR for all these years was the Political Junkie. I was always introduced as the Political Junkie segment. Um, KR is what I have to do for the for emails purposes, but for all intents and purposes, the show is the political junkie. If you were interviewing yourself, what would be the question that you would ask to get you out of the things that you normally say into something more revealing, like you talked about with uh, interviewing politicians? <laughs> wow! If I had to do that. I would probably say, Ken, what the heck are you doing? Why are you spending every living moment talking politics when you can't stand the current state of politics? And I don't know the answer to that part. I mean, as much as I love, deeply love political history. I love the the history, the lore, the trivia, the, the, the human beings, the giants who came before us. But I deeply, deeply hate what politics have become. I mean, deeply. It's, it's just not even close. The fact that you have you have Ron DeSantis yelling at kids because they're wearing a mask during a pandemic. The cruelty, the meanness, the ugliness is... It's celebrated now in many quarters, right? It's it's lauded. It's considered to be the tough guy that we want. Yeah, I think uh, the, the, uh, Joe Biden gave them a name the other day about the people who just refused to... Uh, yeah. Ultra MAGA. Yeah, ultra MAGA. Now they're making t- T-shirts. I'm proud to be an ultra MAGA. Exactly. Yes, you. There, there. It's a. It's there's a certain political deafness to that, even though it's reprehensible. How do you think about your responsibility now in the time of Trump? Does that make you want to editorialize to, in how you choose your topics, or do you think about it as like it is furthering democracy to cover politics as politics? in a straight way. 
See, that's a great question. That's what changed me. That's what changed me. I could, you know, spending all these years, even decades, covering politics. He said, she said, Democrats versus Republicans. And I was fine doing that. I mean, you know, I could make a case for, for anything, for any issue in the past, uh, you know, even handedly. But there's no way that I could be silent, for example, when you had tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of people dying from a, a virus that the president, former president, uh, dismissed as a media plot, a democratic plot to defeat me. You know, he said, it's, it's, no, it's no worse than the flu. Or a Chinese plot. Or, or a yeah. Chinese plot. It's always got to be somebody to blame. Right, right, exactly. And they're all out to defeat me. I mean, right now he endorses people not because they're sufficiently conservative. I mean, Mehmet Oz is hardly conservative. But if you agree with the steel, if you agree that I was wrong in 2020, then I will endorse you. No, his only principle is self-promotion. Absolutely. And so what I would say, you know, I, I often I would write a post on, on Facebook. I said, I'll be honest with you, I don't recognize myself anymore because I was so down to down the middle that nobody knew what my politics were at NPR, at ABC, even family. I mean, I was just right down the middle. But do I wish I was a journalist going right down the middle? No, I'd be ashamed of myself. I could not be silent when somebody is destroying the Constitution and destroying politics as I cherish and worshipped it for this self-promotion. I've talked to a professor... Tulis at University of Texas, Austin, who's an eminent scholar of, of American political history, has a, a really important book about how the voice of presidents change over time. And he said that he started in his lectures to editorialize, which he had never done because of the change in era. It's become a necessity to stand up in, in this time. I think that's true. I don't know what good we're doing. I think we have no choice. I could not go to sleep uh, feeling okay with myself if I remain silent. It, it's such look. I hate I hate to throw in the Hitler co uh, uh, comparison. I mean, because that's always very dangerous. But people stayed silent, and people said, "Well, you know, we'll see what happens." I feel I can't stay silent for somebody whose whose goal seems to be leading to authoritarianism. I mean, I don't know how else to do it. He wouldn't even commit to a, a peaceful transfer of power. The vast majority of the country doesn't think with an understanding of what authoritarian is or what its consequences are and how dire that change would be to our freedoms and our ability to govern ourselves. But those people who do understand it and who see how he's using this playbook that's been used by Mussolini or Orban or around the world, we can't let it happen here. You can't be quiet, that's for certain. I mean, uh, you know, you want to kick, you know, take me away kicking and screaming, that's fine. But, you know, you, you know, that famous thing, first they came for the lawyers and then they, I mean, they, I just cannot stay silent. Yeah. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that I should have? You've asked questions that I never expected, that's for sure, because I do these things automatically because it's my passion. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i a passionate New York Yankees fan. And I, oh, so I'm sorry. I'm uh, really oh, sorry. Oh, oh wait. Uh, did my microphone did my microphone stop working? Look, or, my dad grew up in Brooklyn as a Dodgers fan. Grew up in the Bronx. There's no way that he could countenance that kind of uh, relationship you have with a baseball team. So I've inherited that. 
My son is now 31. We would go to a, a, a Oriole game when the Yankees were playing, and we'd get on 95, and the big sign said, Baltimore, New York. And he wanted to know if they switched the sign every time a different team was playing the Orioles. He said, "We could, Daddy, we got to buy a TV in New York so I can watch Yankee games all the time. <laughs> Look, I, I grew up 10 blocks from the stadium. I don't, you know, I don't mind people who hate them, but... They have quite a history in baseball with from the murderer's row onward, so... Well, I'm, I was too young to remember that, but, but I do remember the Mantle Maris, Pepitone, Ford, Barra. Uh, I can't believe I threw Pepitone in there, but those years, <laughs> those years. And it's just, but you know something, if I grew up in a, in a place where the team sucked, but it was my, my childhood, boy, I, I wouldn't change for anything. No, I, I used to root for the Denver Bears in the AAA because Colorado, where I grew up, did not have a major league team. So... I knew all these people who went on to be major leaguers, particularly with the Expos, that was their farm team, you know, way before they burst onto the scene. Great players. How about that John Love, huh? <laughs> Who's John Love? He was the Republican governor of Colorado, first elected in 1962, re-elected in 1966, and joined Nixon's cabinet in 69. Well, see, you got me up and to the, my age of four, so I'm a little slow four. on that. I'm impressed, suitably impressed. Have you ever seen my time plots, which are visual histories of the Supreme Court and the Congress and the Senate and other American political institutions, big posters? No, no. You have to send me your address. I will send you a set of them. I have visualizations of the political history of the country in various different ways that I bet you would like to peruse. I love that. Speaking of the Supreme Court, in 2014, I spent two days with Sandra Day O'Connor, in, uh, in, which was just in Arizona, which was one day we spent the whole day doing um, the Pink Jeep Tour uh, in Sedona. It was just so magnificent because she would tell me things that were personal. Like, for example, uh, she hated the fact that Barack Obama called out the Supreme Court uh, during a State of the Union, and that's, that's the famous Alito shaking his head no. But she would she would be a real person. And I am absolutely confident that she'd be appalled by what's going on right now oh, with absolutely. the Supreme Court, even yeah. though she was a Reagan appointee. You're right, exactly. How could she not? I mean, everybody says, well, you know, she voted, she helped elect Bush uh, in, in 2000. Yeah, well, well, that was a mistake. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, if, think of 2000 compared to what the court is doing now, my no, goodness. They're gonna I, they're gonna allow a legislative overturning of uh, a popular vote in a state for the electoral college to just total craziness and anarchy and undermining our system in a fundamental way. Authoritarianism, exactly. Yeah. Well, it has been a great honor to talk to you today. Really fun. Oh, uh, I love it. I, 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 you know, I, I didn't didn't know much about your stuff, but I mean, you're so smart and and you helped me finish my. You helped me finish my sentences. Well, thank you. Right. Paragraphs. No, that's why I said that. I did Diatribes. That. I no. did that. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you want to say? Well, one story I, I just can't help, but but this is an ultimate political junkie story. One day I'm coming out of work and I'm going uh, getting on the metro, and I notice that former Senator Birch Bayh is sitting on the, in the seat, and I sit right next to him, and we're both looking straight ahead. We don't acknowledge each other. And I say, looking straight ahead, I say, Homer Capehart, 1962, William Ruckelshaus, 1968, and Dick Luger, 1974. 
And I just say that straight ahead, looking straight ahead. And Birch Bar looking straight ahead, he said, thank you for not saying Dan Quayle, 1980. Oh. I listed all the guys he beat for the Senate in 62, 68, and 74. And without cracking a smile, he just said, thank you for not mentioning Dan Quayle, 1980, who beat him. My mom cried that election night when the, the wipeout of the of the of all of the old-time liberals in the Senate, 12 of them or so. Gaylord Nelson, Warren Magnuson, uh, George McGovern, of course, uh, Birch Bayh. Yeah, that was a, that was a wipeout of election. Church. Yep. Do you happen to know um, Bob Blameyer? Bob Blameyer was a staffer for Birch Bayh, who has a biography out called Birch Bayh, American Senator. I know he had great access to Bayh f- for numerous interviews. And it might be worth reading for people like you and me. Oh, see, I love that kind of book. I, I, I was at the Buy headquarters in New Hampshire in 1976, and I was talking to this kid named Evan Buy, who was, you know, one of these, these kids who were, I, I'm know, aware of Evan, yep. <laughs> exactly. He would tell me how much he hated Vance Hartke. I mean, how many people hate Vance Hartke and live to tell the tale? <laughs> but but it's just like, you know, the unguarded moments where they say, oh, because he was another senator, but he always felt that Hartke didn't give the the, the, the deserved reverence. And I was a big Birch Bayh fan. I thought he was a decent guy, smart guy. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about my passion because it is my passion. I see deeply, I love politics. If I'm going to talk about candidates of the past, and that's why I have the same as a similar reverence for people who are no longer with us because they had great stories. They had great courage. They had great desire to make things better. And I kind of think in my zeal about political history, I want to make things better too, is certainly about our government and not to say vote for Smith or vote for Jones, but we've seen better and we can do better. There's got to be at least two or three political junkies that listen to this podcast. I would direct them to check out, krpoliticaljunkie.com and the shows that uh, Ken puts on because they are uh, a great way to learn about our politics. Thank you so much. That was very kind. That was Ken Rudin. He's at krpoliticaljunkie.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.